Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the World of Bitfunds podcast. I am your host, William of AW Studios. Joining with us, as always, is my good friend and co-host, Sean Willis of City Panther. Feels like it's been a while. I think we've both been wrapped up in a all-encompassing brick film project. Yeah, I know. It's it's crazy. I think it's like the longest gap we've had, like, even with like having like breaks from like because of university and stuff. This has actually probably been the longest gap. I think it was July, the last podcast. <laughs> but uh, hopefully the gap between the next one won't be quite as long. <laughs> um, and a uh, special guest today is um, Philip Heinrich of Smeagol. That's me. <laughs> Smeagol. <laughs> I picked that name in fifth grade right after reading Lord of the Rings, and I probably wouldn't have chosen it again uh, in hindsight, but there we go. That's your lasting legacy. Yes. <laughs> Although, actually, um, at least it's not like Gollum. I think it's a bit more like... Oh, it could have been worse, yeah. Yeah. I could have picked any number of, like, I don't know, Tom Bombadil or something. Uh, Smeagol has... It's succinct, and it's unique. And it's not as recognizable. I actually chose it before the movies came out, so um, I'm aging myself a bit there. But uh, it wasn't as recognizable at the time. So you did it before it was cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure that I was reading the books because I knew that we were making movies. So I probably wouldn't have come up with it if not for the movies. But uh, it's really, I'm running out of things to say about Smeagol. Uh, <laughs> Well, so were you interested in filmmaking before brick filming? Yeah, so I it's sort of hard for me to remember a starting point for that interest. Um, I know when I was in second grade, I made a little video with a camcorder, and it was these dinosaurs on wires. It was called Super Iguanodon, and it was for my school project about dinosaurs or something. And I think that's my first video. Um, and then uh, I got interested in stop motion, pretty early because of the Wallace and Gromit films, which I saw, I think, on PBS, specifically The Wrong Trousers and later A Close Shave. I didn't really see the first one until later because it wasn't being broadcast on PBS and the year was, what, 93, 94? So uh, from there, I became interested in the idea of stop motion, and I was always playing with Lego. So I came up with this idea uh, of, hey, maybe I could stop motion animate Lego characters because I realized pretty quickly that making claymation puppets on my own was too difficult. So I quote-unquote invented brick filming in my own bubble, and I started doing little short Lego animations with my dad's digital camera of, like, minifigures being terrorized by Godzilla, but Godzilla was computer-generated and the Lego people were stop-motion, and it was, like, you know, two frames a second. It wasn't good. Uh, and then eventually Lego Studios came out, and I really didn't have like a workable editing setup. My parents uh, were very generous to get that for me for Christmas. And from there, I made uh, Cretaceous Camp and some other things. And that around that time, I think, I discovered BrickFilms.com, which would have been late 2001. Uh, that kind of pushed me, probably, to put a little more work into my films once I saw what other people were making. So would you have seen The Gauntlet about when that was new? Yeah, I remember The Gauntlet coming out. Uh... And that was exciting, I think. Um, yeah, because right when I got there, the classical music contest was wrapping up. So the Barber of Seville or whatever, I think, was what one. Uh, that had come out. And then the gauntlet came out shortly after. So yeah, I remember when the gauntlet was posted. But that's right around when I discovered the site. And I didn't join the site until like early 2002. Hmm. Yeah, the timeline checks out. <laughs> <laughs> that's good to know, because it's like my memory 
but I don't know if it's accurate, but it sounds like it is. Because I know as well, like, um, because I just, just remember then, because I'm looking at the wiki, that um, there was, because Legozilla was in a film that you made that actually, you actually lost because the software crashed. It was an issue with Lego Studios, I remember. Uh, it wasn't working correctly. And then my dad said, well, you should uninstall it and reinstall it. And that wasn't working. So then he, or maybe I, found this uninstaller program that would like erase all traces of your program and it deleted all the files because they were like nested in the program files or something like that. So yeah, the whole film was deleted except for the teaser that I had posted. And basically I'd finished the film, but I couldn't get it to export from Lego Studios, Hmm. which was not the best software. How long was the film? It was probably four or five minutes. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, I've, I've seen old posts from people saying that once you get to about that time, it doesn't like exporting the films very much. Mm-hmm. That sounds about right. <laughs> um, and I could have re-edited it, but all the clips got erased. So it was probably marginally an improvement on Cretaceous Camp production-wise, but I had a very slow period of making only like these very low-quality films. Part of what happened was I made a half-hour-long Star Wars meets Star Trek crossover film, and that sort of sucked all my time for almost four years so I didn't really improve very much in that time and then after I finished that I started to learn new things and I got a Canon power shot so I upgraded the quality pretty rapidly starting around I guess Crown of Syracuse but uh the the Star Wars films came out before that didn't they uh I was thinking as I said that Sean's gonna remember if that's accurate or not (laughs) um because those those seem to be a step up Oh, I know what happened. Yeah, I shot Crown of Syracuse first. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they were a bit of a step up. They were still on the webcam. But I kind of somewhat more knew what I was doing by that point. And to be fair, uh, I would say Attack of the Drones gets better as it goes because I pretty much shot it chronologically. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, the quality level is probably pretty close to those two, those first two shorts. Um, then I shot Crown of Syracuse after I made, I think, the second one. And then I like sat on Crown of Syracuse for a contest deadline for a couple months while I made the third one. So I'm not sure what the release order was, but I, Crown of Syracuse was the first one that I filmed on the power shot. And then that that would bring us right into the uh, <laughs> infamous Star Wars movie making contest. Oh yeah, yeah. So I started uh, making an entry. It was about Darth Bane, and I realized when I was about two thirds of the way through that it was way too dark for a Lego Star Wars contest. So I started over with a new film. I went back and finished the Bane of the Sith trailer later. But I started with a new film, and I got it in just in time for the deadline. I emailed them about it afterward because the results seemed kind of suspect. And somebody admitted to me in email form that they didn't watch the entries before picking a winner. So that was real fun. They basically gave the win to the first person to submit uh, three months earlier. And it was just a, it was an existing film he just uploaded. Kind of an obscure chapter by now, but I think it's a mm-hmm. it's a very interesting story in brick film history. There, I, yeah, I'll it is get interesting to it eventually. as far as like Lego itself was not able to run a competent contest compared to what BrickFilms.com was doing. Although I think they had a marketing agency handling it, not Lego themselves. Was there some sort of way to track the popularity of the entries on the website at the um, time? It's very poorly archived, so I'm missing a lot of the info. I think there were views or something. I just remember looking at it and it being really clear cut that they didn't watch any of the entries. So I we I emailed and they admitted it, and then they of course doubled back on it later. And I feel uh, like the the old posts that I've seen it seems to allude to them picking the winners before the deadline was up. So like all the best entries 
that got submitted right at the end of the deadline right. weren't viewed. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure I wasn't the only one, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was like they just the, the top three were like the first three that were submitted or something like that. Uh, it was, I think it was run by an agency or some kind of third party. I don't think the legwork group was that heavily involved, so they were probably just doing the absolute minimum of effort. <laughs> After I, I spent my whole summer making two different entries. Yeah, and it, it kind of sets up uh, a lot of future stories with Lego. Uh, it's interesting. I didn't have any experience with the other ones aside from Tongle. But yeah, they don't... Whatever their, their digital marketing team... I'm not sure if they're still using Tongle now. I haven't really seen much recently. I think it's just everything's going to Brotherhood Workshop and Ant Bandit and maybe a small number yeah. of other people. Which, I mean, that makes a lot of sense from like a business standpoint. I would just <laughs> hire the same contractors over and over if it were me making yeah. that kind of decision. Seems like a better system to me, all right, yeah. I never really understood why they would want to use Tongle. It, it seemed very... I mean, I guess it was good for them to find those people in the first place. Uh, yeah, Brotherhood and... Uh, I don't know if Chris Theoran still does stuff for them or not. He used to do a lot of the Tongle projects. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen much recently. Something's arrived. Well, it's very hard to know, the, you know, if who made what for Lego. Right, because they don't. Which I mean, they shouldn't. It's not normal to credit people for yeah. advertisements, but uh, yeah, I see on that Facebook group sometimes people are like, "Who made this one?" <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of funny. Like it, it usually it, it kind of annoys me and a small number of other people that they never credit but like i completely get that yeah it's advertising and it's usually not credited <laughs> yeah i mean half the time i wouldn't want to be credited on freelance stuff that i did but oh um spite your face doing much these days not for lego anyway not since 04 yeah i don't know i think it's mostly tony i get yeah tony um i think he is still using that name and i don't know if tim is still involved or not but at least that was the impression I got when I shot the documentary. Um, was that they not really? I mean, they're still friends, but like they weren't working together regularly. They were living in different cities. So yeah, I don't know. I saw some kind of Lego animation he had done a few years ago, but I don't think it was for Lego. Yeah, I'm aware of one that seems to have been for. It seems to be internal for some other client that was done with Lego. Right. He still seems to occasionally do Lego animation. Sometimes posts stuff on Instagram, I think. Mm-hmm. But definitely not for the Lego group, and not in a long time. I'm not sure what the story is like after uh, the Spider-Man film. Yeah, because obviously that was like a a, re- a real big deal, and they were obviously really proud of them because they, I mean, they kept that on their website for so many years. Mm-hmm. Was that before or after the Han Solo affair? I think after. it was after. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the Spider-Man film it also did really well on like sort of precursor to YouTube type websites like iFilm. So yeah, that was a huge deal at the time. But um, they were probably didn't do much in the way of. Uh, stop motion video promotion after that mm-hmm. for a while since like studios was gone and it would be a few years before youtube was well established hmm. yeah i remember when youtube came out the quality was so poor that i didn't really want to post my films on it and then after a while i sort of realized i was going to be left behind if i didn't so i relented and started posting my films yeah i find it interesting but at first the quality was so bad compared to like a 50 gigabyte download or whatever <laughs> Yeah, it seems like in about 2007, there was a small number of people on Rickfilms.com who were getting into HD, and you were one of them. Yeah, I mean, it was 720p, so it wasn't even full HD, but it looked so much better than... The YouTube stuff yeah. was really... I mean, the, the bit rate was just really low. Yeah, and like then nowadays, it got better, and then it, and then it got worse again. But... When, when you look back and you, you think of what the general picture quality was in 07, you're mm-hmm. looking at all those ancient YouTube uploads. Mm-hmm. 
you get the well, impression yeah, like that the, it was terrible. The Hastings one that we're going to talk about later. Um, <laughs> I can't read any of the text. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. January '08. So I was. Um, yeah. I was actually going to mention that. Um, but yeah, like I was. I was like, what? What? What does it say? I was so kind of like, yeah. Um, and I think as well, like even even today, um, the 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 overall quality of like the YouTube videos, like it's not like great, like by like compared to like other streaming services. Yeah, it's a step down from Vimeo or something. They've always been below the top, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, for sure. But I'm sure it's a cost thing and upload speed, conversion speed, all that. They have such a large base of people posting videos. I'm really curious how I think Netflix is the best looking that I've seen. I don't know. Like Amazon is a little, the bitrate looks lower to me than Netflix. Where I really notice it is in the grain structure of movies that have like a grainy texture. It, that gets lost very quickly if it's if the bitrate is low. You can see it on most Blu-rays and then usually in streaming it kind of gets washed out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Blu-rays still look good compared to streaming, usually. Mm-hmm. But as I feel like something that um, people don't kind of talk about these days, people who weren't really around seem to treat it as if, like, once YouTube came along on the internet, like everything changed practically overnight. But, of course, that wasn't really the case. And I was wondering if, if you remember, what was the general feeling towards YouTube in the brick filming community when it was, like, brand new, when it was just this kind right. of thing that people were hearing about? Well, it was convenient to post your film on. I don't think people saw it as a way to get views or that kind of thing until a few years later when that started to become apparent with the ability to subscribe, things like that. There wasn't a huge viewer base at first. And so I remember me and a few other people griping about the picture quality being so poor and just not wanting, like I would rather people not see it that way. But then people were getting these huge view counts and it seemed like it was just the way things were going. So I think they increased the quality a little bit I don't think it was HD yet, I'm not sure. But at some point, I think in 2007, I relented and started uploading on YouTube just because I didn't want to be left behind. And I wanted to kind of capitalize on how well a lot of LEGO animation was doing on YouTube at the time. And it worked pretty well for me. Like I got something like 10,000 subscribers very quickly. And the view counts I was getting from 2007 to 2010 are so much higher than anything I get now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the least lower problem. Well, I can hear it, but it's I not I feel like he's getting bad. closer and closer. <sighs> I don't understand why why do they have to blow leaves every day? My leaves are thoroughly blown. Anyway. <laughs> Ten thousand subscribers back in the early years of YouTube was pretty huge. Yeah, I was, it was it was exciting channel. and I've just never come close to that size of audience since. <laughs> <laughs> but did you have much involvement uh, as far as like community involvement on YouTube specifically? Or were you mostly on Bricks in Motion? I mean, there was an inbox, and I would reply to comments, things like that. Um, I feel like comment quality was a little bit better back then, because of the kind of people that were on the front of the curve of watching internet videos and commenting on them. But yeah, I don't. I think I kind of used it as a place to park my videos. Yeah. I, I remember decorating my channel page, fifteen channel redesigns ago, <laughs> uh, and like putting my logo on there, things like that. But I wasn't um, vlogging. I wasn't really that engaged in it. Um, I was more interested in making the films. Mm-hmm, yeah, it's just I'm just remembering all the like sort of social media type features that they used to have that are all gone now. Yeah, there was an inbox um, for messaging and I, I was pretty active on that. I mean, I would reply to people. I think that's gone now. Yeah, it was very well hidden for many years and they didn't send you any notifications. And now I think it's just entirely gone. 
I found it through Google in order to get to it occasionally when I needed to dig up old messages in like 2012, 2013. But yeah. So um, in brick filming, you would have been one of the earlier or relatively earlier people to be using a lot of 3D and computer effects. So uh, what program were you using at the time? Um, I'm trying to think when I when I first started. So I started out in a program called Raydream 3D, uh, and I got that when I was like a little. I was a weird kid. I got it when I was a little kid. I like saved up my allowance and bought Raydream 3D. I, I was wanting to make 3D animated movies, but I think I realized pretty quickly that wasn't going to happen. Uh, it's pretty pretty difficult. And then I started using that for some effects work in my videos. Yeah, I think it was still Raydream on like my earliest effects work, like in uh, Attack of the Drones and such. Uh, and then eventually Raydream 3D turned into Carrera 3D. It was just they renamed the program and they kind of redid the UI. And at some point it was purchased by two different companies, kept getting sold. And so I was using Raydream 3D for most of that time because I didn't really want to take the time to learn a new 3D program for a long time there. But I just finally recently took the time to learn Blender pretty well. I would say I'm probably a little better in Blender than I ever was in Carrera now. So uh, going forward, I will probably use Blender for that kind of thing. Yeah, because I remember in about 2008 looking at films like Unrenewable and the stuff that uh, Leonardo812 and Nick Duran were doing. And it, it seemed like, uh, you know, it, it felt at the time it felt like, oh, this is what everyone's going to be doing in like 10 years time in brick filming. But it kind of went the other way. Yeah, not so much. Yeah. I'm glad that people aren't. It's sort of a crutch, but and it, it always looked really artificial. Uh, yeah, that's um, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I, think, think... I think like looking about it, looking at, back at it now, because it's like quite a long time ago like is you know over 10 years ago it feels quite like an aesthetic like a look um mm -hmm. because it's very it's very specific to that sort of period of time yeah. mm -hmm. um so you, i think I, I look back at it um like like with today's eyes and it it's quite it's a it's definitely a look i think um maybe maybe i'm looking at it a bit more fondly than i would have had it been like a few years after um, but yeah. it's almost it's almost nostalgic now. <laughs> I did a slightly better job of concealing the really obvious stuff in Unrenewable, I think. Crown of Syracuse opens on this really blatant CGI shot that looks nothing like the rest of the scene. I tried to move away from that, at least. Yeah, I think most of Unrenewable still actually holds up really well. The extended sets, at, like at the beached whale sign, those yeah, kind of areas. I mean, most of that shot is really CGI, and it, it looks okay. I think, actually, like the, the opening... Um, that kind of shot, you know, where it's like going down and you, you first see him, you know, the detective, mm -hmm. like that still looks like amazing, I think, like really quite iconic. It helps that most of the CGI was out of focus in that shot. I used a, like a pretty decent, like defocusing lens blur effect in uh, GIMP at the time. Like I had to process frame by frame. That helped sell it a little bit. I think as well. Shallow depth of field. I think what what kind of uh, works for it, you know, is, is in its favor quite a lot as well. Is because because it's a film noir kind of style, and it's um, mm -hmm. a, very dark most of the time. Um, yep, dark and rainy. Yeah, so it, it kind of it kind of masks a lot of it. So it blends yeah, in. Yeah, whereas quite Crown of well. Syracuse, it's broad daylight of a bunch of minifigures. It just looks very fake. Yeah, but the, the, I was learning at the time, so the only thing that pops out for me is probably like the the liquid effects, but. Yeah, I was no. thinking about that too. <laughs> but aside from that, though, I think it still holds up pretty well. I think it'd be kind of fun to go back and 
make a brick film with like good CGI now, but it's hard for me to want to spend the kind of time and money on a brick film that it would take uh, just because they're fairly limited in what I can do with them professionally. Yeah. Um, certainly in, into this day and age, if you want to make a, a major brick film project, yeah, you need a, a hell of a lot of money and time if you want it to be uh, outstanding. Yeah, it's one of those things where the better I get, the more time and money it takes me to make anything. And also, I feel like back then, in like the late 2000s, people responded to the films way better. You know, stuff had this stature about it. Yeah, that was uh, an exciting thing uh, at the time. And even like when I made My Father's Transource Rex in 2011, the brick film, uh, that was pretty well received. I got a lot of replies from that. I remember somebody even reposted it on, I think, Brick or Brack, and there were all these people talking about how they liked it there, too. And then I posted Puff and Dolia in, I think, 2015, and like two people replied, <laughs> something like that. So it was just a stark difference in a span of only four years there. Yeah, yeah. Nowadays, it feels like there's always stuff that's like objectively way more impressive coming out, and nobody really responds to it. They're just like, oh, nice. Yeah, that's what I think. I, I don't think that the quality has gone down or whatever. It's just uh, the community aspect the dynamic of it is very different now and yeah. i do think a lot of that has to do with youtube and social media kind of replacing message boards but it does make it less exciting to post a film for sure mm -hmm. um i mean there is that kind of uh thing that i guess they've they often say a lot about like how the internet these days is basically i think when you think of things like i don't know even like meme formats and stuff they last like you know Days. A week. <laughs> yeah. And then and then it's old news. And it's like that, I think. Um It's a lot of content, yeah. Yeah. Like like these days it's like, you know, you you kind of you can watch a film that's that took, you know, months and months to make and it kind of to a lot of people it's just like five minutes of their time and then they just go on. Yeah. I mean you could say the same about a lot of film and television, I think, in the real mm. world or the real industry. Like I remember the T V show Lost when it was airing there weren't that many things to watch at the time, or certainly not at that quality level on network television. So it was like this big event, and a lot of people watched it, and you could talk about it with other people throughout the week as each episode came out one at a time. And those were long seasons, so it was a big part of the year that that they were releasing episodes. Now you have something like uh, Chernobyl or The Queen's Gambit, these really impressive series with a lot of interesting things going on. And people watch them in two nights and then, you know, just binging it. And then like two weeks later, you're not really hearing about it anymore because five other things have come out that mm. people are now talking about on social. It's, and I think like, you get a little bit of that with Lego as well. Or with I think films. that, um, you know, even I think films have, have gone like that as well, I think, with COVID. And I know that I've heard people mm -hmm. say this um, before, but like um, with, with the COVID going on and having films being released you know just online yeah. you miss that like the actual experience of like it being an event because the the thing like yep. leading up to like going to see the film and everything and and you know talking with friends like you, you know if you, if you watched it with friends and stuff like that experience is sort of gone if it's just oh yeah i'll just watch this now you know yeah um and i've been dealing with that a little bit with my live action short that i shot last year and it's going through festivals this year but they're all virtual festivals and some of them make a decent effort at trying to replace the festival with live online events. And some of them don't really do anything. It's just like, oh, yeah, you can stream the films on this website. 
And so then it's just in this void. I never hear anything from anybody. I don't know if anybody saw my film or not. Yeah, I haven't really seen much from virtual festivals, but that really seems like an area where it's just completely doesn't work without people actually being there. Yeah, it's been fairly disappointing. I've been in, I guess, two festivals so far. There's another one I was accepted to, FilmQuest, and they are still hoping to do it in the spring. Uh, we'll see. They they seem like they're taking the pandemic pretty seriously, so I don't think they'll do it if it's dangerous, but it's difficult to see them being able to do it at a safe time next year, other than their usual time in October. But by then, they'll have a whole other festival to do. So, hmm. But there is, in, in brick filming, there is kind of the other side to the coin in that it, I remember back then when stuff got like really hyped up, like Unrenewable did, uh, there was always, you know, people would come along and sort of like rain on its parade, you know, Unrenewable and Yeah, Grace try to knock it down ones. a few pegs. Yeah. I remember that Unrenewable so got a, a wave of hate for a while there. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I remember, I know people compared it to Wally because it came out the day, or I finished it, I guess, the day before Wally came out. And then it had a few similarities to Wally and people saw it and they're like, oh, you ripped off Wally. Um, it's like, that's impossible. I, it wasn't out yet. What happened was there was a movie called Silent Running in the 80s that I was somewhat inspired by. And I would say Wally kind of wholeheartedly ripped off. And so we both had similarities to that movie. But I think by now we can say for certain that uh, Unrenewable is cemented as a classic of the era. <laughs> well, thanks. I always remember this one thread on Bricks of Motion. It was like Brick Film Classics and everyone kept saying Unrenewable and there'd always be a response like, oh, no, you can't say that. It's too early. You can't call Unrenewable a classic. It's pretty oh, funny. Oh, funny. How... This was like 2009. Uh, maybe even 2010. I'm not sure. Or 11. But yeah. mm -hmm. there'd always be somebody to come along to respond to those about Unrenewable in particular. That's... That's funny. I didn't really. I probably wasn't reading those threads, but uh, that's that's funny. It's unrenewable is not very fun, so I can see why some people wouldn't like it from a brick film standpoint. Hmm. It's pretty dour. It, it's uh, it was supposed to be like a dark comedy. Like I wasn't playing anything straight in that, but uh, you know, it's a parody of film noir, but uh, and kind of a satire. But it's still pretty dour. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like the humor in your brick films uh, is often quite dry like i remember when i was really young i i, I didn't get the star wars films at all <laughs> like i did barely yeah, even I recognized humor in them yeah it's pretty funny to me that i was writing stuff like that at that age i mean um out of like your um like whole filmography at least with like within brick filming like um would unrenewable be like your favorite um i don't know uh unrenewable is like the most impressive i would say but in terms of like a short film that I can just show people and they'll enjoy it, I'd probably pick My Father as a Tyrannosaurus Rex or maybe Puffendolia. Although I think Puffendolia is just kind of two people talking in a room. It doesn't really take advantage of the visual medium as much. So um, yeah, it depends on the audience. Certainly Unrenewable was like my greatest achievement uh, technically in brick filming. Mm. I would say Although, that actually um, My Father as a Tyrannosaurus Rex is probably one of the easiest ones to kind of like to show your like you know, what you, your work because it's um definitely one that i guess is quite easy to understand i suppose like the humor humor wise and stuff yeah i mean it's a one joke film it's just like hammering on this punchline for a minute and a half because the punchline is funny to be fair uh puff and dolia is basically the same thing it's like this one joke 
and just building it up for two minutes. I feel like Puff and Dolly probably works really well though with uh, most people. Yeah, I was gonna say that it reminds me a lot of like a lot of the like sketch sort of like videos on YouTube. The kind of like uh, pacing and the way that it's mm. kind of just using the same sort of punchline, but kind of like adding mm-hmm. onto it. Yeah, yeah, I can well, see that. Basically, all short filmmaking, really, if you think about it, making like a five-minute short, it's it's kind of the, along the same lines. Mm. But um, am I right in thinking that Unrenewable was uh, at least partially inspired by Twelve Bucks? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, because I remember really liking Twelve Bucks. The inspirations I really was cognizant of were probably Soylent Green and Silent Running. Um, but as far as Lego, yeah, I think I was in- interested in like the nighttime scenes and the colorful light. Mm. Yeah, the colorful light particularly. Because of, uh, because of 12 bucks. It was unusual at the time. And it was a satire too. So yeah, that, that probably seeped in there. I'm pretty sure that I had seen that before I made Unrenewable. I know I didn't see 12 bucks until... Like, I had heard of it for a long time, and I finally watched it, and I liked it a lot. Um, but I think it was before I made Unrenewable. Because I made the a history video about 90s brick films, and at, at one mm-hmm. point there's like a, a brief montage of brick films influenced by 12 books, mm-hmm. and I put Unrenewable in there, and I, I, I think based mm-hmm. on some me- vague memory that, that you might have mentioned that it was inspired by it, so I just wanted to check to be sure. Uh, probably. Pretty sure. I mean, I'm not pretty sure, but <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I will say uh, I had not, never seen Blade Runner, so any similarities there were coincidental. That's actually kind of surprising, I guess. Although, I mean, yeah, Blade Runner influenced so much that it... Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've seen Soylent Green, but that's a future noir film, so it's kind of the same idea as Blade Runner uh, in terms of uh, being a futuristic noir in this horrible city um, where everything's just really run down. Uh, so I think Blade Runner has some similarities to that. Yeah, it's funny. I was, um, I think I remember hearing you say before um, that um, you hadn't seen Blade Runner, which is quite funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, it's it, it's a uh, it's kind of a. I don't know if it was necessarily Blade Runner that came up with that idea. The kind of visual look It's definitely most sort of like. Um, I think Blade Runner is the most like famous um, kind of example of that sort of look futuristic noir but like it's i wouldn't say it necessarily invented it yeah i mean i was doing noir in the future basically and so it ends up being the same combination as blade runner which i hadn't seen i guess but... you saw attack of the clones before unrenewable so maybe you were inspired by um the you know the yeah, maybe. beginning <laughs> <laughs> yeah coruscant uh yeah there's probably some of that in there yeah i mean i remember the soylent green being the big one what about uh, robota actually Oh yeah, I really liked Robata. So there's not that much like cityscape stuff in Unrenewable. I guess there's a few scenes out, outside, like at the beginning, and then when he's talking to Carl. I'm just um, reminded of Robata because of the like the opening shot when the camera moves mm-hmm. down. Uh, oh okay. In brick yeah, filming, I, it seems reminiscent. I can't remember that shot from Robata, but maybe. I think that Robata is probably partly inspired by Metropolis. No, everything mm-hmm. is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would say in general, film inspirations are not like my top source of inspiration for films. Uh, I usually pull more from like books or stories that are not films or paintings, things like that. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of always been that way. Uh, I like it in the sense that 
hopefully I get something that is less familiar as having been from a movie. But um, and certainly you had to pull, especially cinematography references from other films, I think. Yeah. And it's good to get ideas about like how you can edit scenes and do things in less conventional ways. Because I think if you have very few film inspirations, then all you're really going to do is derive from a very small pool. Uh, I don't think it's the case that you can like spoil yourself creatively by seeing too many films. But in general, it's just not the first place I start with inspiration. That's actually quite interesting because I think that when people think of visual inspiration for films, they quite often think of films as being the default. But I think it's always really good to kind of like branch out and try and find yeah. art and, and like... I got really into like night street photography when I was working on this live action short I did last year. So like all my almost all my visual references were not from movies for that project. They were all like these street photography night city scenes. Uh obviously kind of similar to Undernoble in that way, but uh and then I think I I know I have like several paintings as references on this script I'm working on right now. So it's I don't know. I guess my I don't automatically start from films cuz it's like, well, that's already been done in a film, so it's really helpful for specific lighting references cuz if it's in a film, it's something you can actually emulate, but uh, it's not my go-to. Well, I, I've liked, in recent times, I've liked looking at paintings for a composition reference because obviously they don't have moving cameras and moving the mm. camera in a brick film is kind of a pain in the ass. So it's nice to be able to try that's to true. set up shots that are still but look nice. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like, <laughs> if you if you have a, if you just use a webcam, you just move it around all the time. <laughs> <laughs> But, but well, the benefit of a DSLR is the different lenses, and lengths you can use. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they're definitely like uh, you know pluses and negatives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I kind of I kind of like the idea of using both. Um, you know, like alternating between them. I bet that would be quite cool. Oh yeah, yeah. Far as far does that. He uses the webcam when it's uh, appropriate. It's pretty funny to me how much I didn't know when I made say Unrenewable. Like I didn't understand aperture or focal length when I made that movie. I just sort of like winged it, I guess, but I didn't know what any of those things meant. <laughs> and it was on the power shot, so that's a zoom lens. Like I could have created different focal lengths, but I didn't know what I was doing. So there's so much, like my entire technical approach would be so different now. Yeah. And by the by the time I did Puffendolia, I knew what I was doing. If it, it might sound funny, but like I'm only really I've only really kind of got the got a good grasp of aperture and focal lengths in like recent times really mm -hmm. same here yeah oh sure even even though i'm like third year um film student i still i still struggle with it you know oh i i didn't get a good handle on it until grad school so don't feel bad gee i feel like for the longest time i was only i was only influenced by uh other brick films uh mm -hmm. and only with taco turbo 2 which i'm still working on have i really been like properly looking at a uh, feature films for it mm -hmm. that was the primary source of inspiration and it's a completely yeah, different and... look. And now, now I look back at my old work, even stuff I thought was really good at the time when I made it, and I'm like, it's all a little bit wrong. <laughs> now it would be so exciting to me to return to LEGO animation on the technical side because you can create these grandiose, complex lighting setups with like pieces of cardboard. And, you know, can do it all on a very small scale. Um, things that I wouldn't be able to afford to do on a live-action production just in terms of the, the sophistication of the lighting. I think there's a lot... Like, you could take a lot of the lessons from live action and apply them to stop motion very directly. Yeah, I've been trying to keep the lighting, uh, like, emulating real life, where it's, it's coming in windows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Things like that, rather than just blasting from above. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, every film I ever, brick film I ever did in the early days, there was no real logic to the light sources. I mean, maybe occasionally I, I faked some practicals like the air purifier in Jack's office, but usually it was just like, I think there should be light coming from over here. I think it was like last year that I got um, actual desk lamps because I used to use a photography lamp, just one really big one, and it, it mm-hmm. just like flood the set. And I would sort of adjust mm-hmm. it in like um, on on the soft on my like Logitech software. But mm-hmm. um, I found like so so I bought like these three like desk lamps on, on Amazon, and um, only then did I really get a good idea of like because it's basically the same thing as being in a studio, just you know, small. Um, And then just like getting the ideas of just like how to, I've learned so much more from just like doing stuff with these desk lamps than I have in university. (laughs) One thing I'd like to ask, like, I guess I haven't really mentioned it before, but like, um, who are your biggest inspirations within, within brick filming? Yeah. Within brick filming. Um, Yeah. I think early on it was uh, Jay Silver because he did the gauntlet and also the, the rise of the empire trailer. And I was very big into Lego star Wars at the time. And then, um, Tim Dredge, Tony mines, spite your face. Uh, their videos were very impressive, obviously. And I think that was, it's mostly what I remember. I did a lot of very visual effects, intensive star Wars videos for several years. So I guess that tracks with those being my inspirations. Hmm. Yeah. We have a bit of a running joke here that we always have to mention spite your face on every podcast. So, uh, hmm. We can take that go. box. We already did earlier too. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, we talked about it multiple, multiple times. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess I guess another thing I was going to ask actually, because um, I always find it's kind of an interesting question. Um, what would you say would be like the most difficult, you know, to brick film to make in terms of like you know something that was really hard to make? Like I guess unrenewable would be like probably one of the ones that was really difficult. Yeah, I mean, I had an abandoned project called Space Opera that got pretty hairy. Um, I shot like a song and a half worth of material for it, but they were like half the shots were in front of green screen where I was going to put these insane visual backdrops in. So, uh, yeah, it was just very daunting. I wrote a 50 page script for it and I shot about maybe eight minutes of footage, but it wasn't really ever edited. So there's nothing to show. And uh, it was too difficult, really, is how that one ended. Um, beyond that, I would say, really, Attack of the Drones. That was my 30-minute Star Wars Star Trek thing. Uh, we had so many effects shots, and it was so long. It was close to 30 minutes. And I didn't know what I was doing, so I was learning everything as I went along. At least by the time I did Unrenewable, I had a pretty good plan going in of how I was going to execute it, and I actually finished the whole film in, like, Close to a month, I think, uh, in time for a contest deadline. Hmm. And then by the time you get to the Brixton Motion documentary animation, was that pretty much like working with people who uh, who know what they're doing? Did that make it a lot easier? Yeah, yeah, we had a lot of technical challenges on that one just because we raised the bar so high in terms of the complexity. So we were definitely still figuring some things out as we went along. But uh, yeah, we never, there was no big crises in terms of figuring out how to pull things off just because we all had a pretty good technical background by that point. Yeah. Cause if you look at it, obviously it looks really impressive. So you... Thanks. Yeah. We tried to make it feel sort of Hollywood. Like the camera is almost always moving at least subtly. And we tried to light it like a real movie. I guess that 
like was a bit of a challenge uh, must have been quite a challenge because you you had to to kind of maintain a kind of cinematic look because obviously the most of it is is live action it would be a bit kind of um it would be a bit jarring if it was like you know you had like this very polished documentary and then it cuts to like you know <laughs> uh, like kind of amateurish kind of brick film you know yeah we wanted it to feel exactly and we also wanted it to contrast as much as we could every other brick film clip that we saw so it's like you know these are these little uh, films that these people made and then this is part of the actual movie so we wanted to set it apart visually in that way uh by by having constant cinematic camera movement and more sophisticated lighting things like that Obviously, we do, we have some clips from like Maxime Marion's films, which are pretty sophisticated. But in general, we wanted to have a division in terms of the style between our stuff and the the clips from other films that we see. I think it was very nice, like uh, as well, like in the in terms of like I liked how it it had its own sort of like narrative. It is basically when you put all them together, it becomes like a its own brick film and its own like yeah. But it's also it's a metaphor for the theme of the story. Yeah. So it's a uh, I actually really like that. I think it's um was a really uh, cool touch to the the whole thing. Thanks. I guess this was be like the biggest the biggest project you've probably actually undertaken. Mm, maybe. I did a master's thesis film in college called In Paradise and that was pretty neck and neck with the documentary. I shot a lot more footage for the documentary though. Yeah, I guess in terms of just like traveling around, like you know, going around the world and sort of yeah, getting a chance to yeah. like, to meet all these people and and stuff was quite yeah, it was a great experience. Yeah, it, it was a lot of work. Don't get me wrong, I just was really into crazy, ambitious projects back then. That sometimes my reach exceeded my grasp for sure. <laughs> it's not a brag. I just like the the scope of these projects was really bigger than it should have been, but. uh that was one nice thing was going into the documentary. I wasn't so daunted because I had done something similar in size before, but not a documentary. I was pretty new to that. Hmm. I mean, I think the it's a it's an example of uh, a crowdfunding project within the brick filming that was was a success as well, which is uh, you know quite something. <laughs> Are there there probably aren't too many of those. Yeah, no. <laughs> There's there's a lot of like stories you hear about like uh, I always think of like the fancy pants uh, story. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go mow your lawns, kids. Um, yeah, I was I was pleasantly surprised by the response on crowdfunding. Um, I thought because it wasn't actually a brick film that we might not get as much traction. We put a ton of effort into the rewards, and in hindsight, I think we would have actually raised the same amount of money if we had had less rewards and we would have raised less money but we would have paid less money for rewards too so it would have balanced out um because we really went above and beyond on the rewards and uh doug vandegrift and nathan wells actually did most of the work on delivering on those which was a phenomenal amount of work so i really appreciate their help and they were both producers on the film as well i haven't heard much from doug vandegrift recently yeah, I don't know. He's a video production manager for a healthcare company. So it's kind of funny because he ended up doing the same work as me hmm. at, a, at a different company. But um, I think he's still there, unlike me. Uh, I don't know what he's up to these days other than working full-time making video, which can take a toll on you and make you less likely to make brick films in your free time. Hmm. 
that's something I've struggled with is like putting all this energy into making commercials all day. And then it's harder to come home and make a brick film or a, any kind of film. Hmm. Exactly like uh, what Jay says in the documentary. <laughs> I mean, do you find so? I mean, this is something that I've always been interested in uh, as someone that kind of wants to go into like video production and and that kind of stuff. Is do you feel like there is that aspect of when it becomes your job, it, you don't get the same kind of like feeling as you did when you were like brick filming? Sure. You know, um, I really like the collaborative nature of live action projects or bigger projects. Um, to me, that's a lot more satisfying than like animating alone in a room for weeks. Um, so that side of it's better even on a commercial project. And I still find uh, being on shoots pretty fun. There's an extent to which if I'm like in a busy season and I'm just creating lots of pretty complex video projects pro professionally, I have no energy left to come home and work on my own projects at home. For example, I shot My Father is a Tyrannosaurus Rex, the live action feature uh, in 2013, I think. And I didn't finish editing it for so long after that. I just recently finished it in like April of this year. And part of the issue there was that what I had left was mostly editing. And my day job was about 75% editing. So it's really hard to be in, say, Adobe Premiere all day at the office and then come home and spend another couple of hours in Adobe Premiere in the evening, hmm. or certainly on the weekend, uh, which is what I was looking at. And I did it, ultimately. The pandemic really wasn't the thing that helped me finish it. I was pretty close right before the pandemic anyway. And then that did push me over the edge because I, I was furloughed at the time. And so I had a little more time, and I wrapped it up. But really, it was like just months and months of spending 30 to 45 minutes in the evenings working on it. Cause that was about all I could stomach. Uh, not cause I disliked the project or anything like that, but it was just, it's pretty difficult to do the exact same work you've been doing all day, uh, for fun in the evenings yeah. for a personal project. That That's something that I definitely get. Um, I mean, like personally for me, I, uh, I, um, find that like doing like university stuff, um, I, I, I struggle even just kind of like writing outlines for stories and stuff like um, mm -hmm. I mean I'm trying at the moment um, to write a, a sort of like script outline for um, Outman and it's it, I just really when you've had like a day of like doing university stuff about a film project it's just sure. like you know you just don't want to do it you, you just feel like creatively and kind of like I guess in terms of like enthusiasm and everything, it's just you feel drained right. and uh, you need a break from it really to kind of like get back into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it helps if the work you're doing on your personal project is not mechanically the exact same thing as what you've been doing. Uh, otherwise, like I always did okay with writing scripts in my free time because it's, I don't do a ton of that at work. If I do, it's like a page and a half commercial um, and it's all about healthcare. So writing a, a story in my free time was more fun. It was when I had to get into Premiere. <laughs> I was like, uh, I feel like I'm back at work right now. Um, even if it's a project I feel good about, which to be fair, T-Rex was really old and I'd kind of been looking at this footage for years and years. Uh, when I came back and did my short film last year, that went pretty fast and it was a lot more fun. So I think if you feel enthusiastic about the project, that helps. And I think that's why... 
I have to feel really good about a script to move forward with it anymore because it's a significant investment mentally and in terms of time and money to get a project through to completion, a personal project. Yeah, I'm feeling that at the moment. I'm making a brick yeah, film, you got... thinking to myself, I'm glad that this is something that I absolutely love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because like, I, I, I can sense like if, if it wasn't, I'd be completely fed up by now. Right. Yeah, and I was a little bit into that stage with T-Rex. It was just, it was kind of a student film, and I was a much better filmmaker by the time I was finishing editing than I was when I shot it, or certainly wrote it, so a little frustrating in that respect. Um, no, I get, I get, like, what you mean, totally, like, I think, yeah, I don't know, it, it kind of, I kind of go in waves. I think, for me, I get this kind of thing of feeling, I don't know if it's, like, I think I've found it quite a lot within the pandemic as well, um, because we're in such a, like, a non-routine I feel like um, instead of instead of having a routine, I go into this sort of state of just fi- fixating and working on like one thing, and not mm-hmm. like not giving myself time to do the other things, yeah. and and somehow I think like having having less to do um, makes you feel worse about it, and it's. I've been much worse with time management since I was furloughed. Like. I'm just working weird hours for no reason. Like I could get up and just work like it was a regular day, but I never do, or I rarely do. And then, yeah, no, I know, what, I know what you're saying. My big project since the pandemic has actually been a feature screenplay that I'm co-writing with another writer, and it has been nice to have a little more headspace to work. Like I think it's the best thing I've written. Um, of course, I only wrote half of it. I'm co-writing, so that helps, but. It's been nice to be able to focus on it a little bit more than I would have otherwise. Mm. I've come to think of it, what what are the plans going forward for the short film you're working on that was at the festivals, or the virtual festivals? Yeah, um, so it's still waiting to hear on some festivals, and then there's Film Quest, which they just keep pushing. Uh, they're hoping to do it in the spring. We will see if that happens. But in contention, I think there's one festival that they invited me, so I have a pretty good chance of getting into that one. Uh, and that's like in June or July. It's pretty late in the, the season, so uh, I guess I won't be able to post it publicly on the internet until probably late 2021. I was hoping to release it fairly soon originally, but the festival schedule all being messed up as it has been has kind of postponed that plan. Yeah, I was wondering about a, a wide release. Yeah, I'll, I'll post it on Vimeo for free eventually. It's It's a short, so I'm not going to do vimeo on demand or anything but uh yeah i just i the festivals have screening requirements where you can't post something publicly online Mm -hmm. uh, and screen at the festival so i'm waiting that out right now but i I always send screener links uh to people that i'm working with and that kind of thing if they request it yeah that's something i've heard recently i was um someone uh, one of our lecturers at my university saying that when your film is going through like the circuit of like film like film festivals and stuff, it has to remain, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like private so that yep. you know you can't just watch it for free online. <laughs> mm-hmm. There are some festivals that are okay with that, but the majority aren't. I have a friend who's been quite successful with running his film in festivals. A short film that he did. Uh, I mean, he's been this current film's been in probably over 20 festivals and he's been doing the festival circuit with this movie for I think over two years now and he's about to wrap up but 
basically, he hits like the really good festivals the first year, and then kind of the second tier festivals the year after that, because the good festivals want premiere status. So his whole cycle takes about two years. He's done it with two two shorts now, and uh, I think he's finally going to be able to release it in the spring. But he's been sitting on that thing for a really long time, hmm. and that's like a success story as as short films and festivals go. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little frustrating, but it's normally it would be worth it for the networking i'm not sure now now i'm just like well i paid all this money to submit to these festivals i might as well stay in them but yeah yep it's it's been a disappointment for sure that i it's like the first time i really made a serious attempt at a short film in many years and i actually got into festivals and then the festivals don't really happen that's yeah i mean i remember with um there were very few like film festivals in um around me and there was one in January. Um, that's actually um, like, it's uh, it's sort of it. The screening is at my university, mm-hmm. and I was able to actually screen a couple of my brick films. And um, mm-hmm. it's just really nice the the experience of like being there. And it was only like let's say like twenty thirty people, but it you know it's it's really it's such a different experience. With you know having you know yeah. having that group of people there. Yeah, I love it. Obviously, with you just don't get you don't you don't get that with being online so it's yeah i think that's the thing i was missing most with the short film for sure yeah i had the ability to experience that with my student films in college because there was a annual student festival at the school and so sometimes there'd be like 100 people in that crowd or even 200 so that was pretty fun and did you ever get to screen a brick film anywhere uh yeah several the oven mostly because it was short i I think or crown of syracuse in the oven maybe um yeah they were at some little festivals and then i think my father's a trans source rex played at this at this student festival because i was in college at that point and that was pretty fun obviously a lot of laughs hmm. or but were there any any stories of reactions to it just being lego at all well yeah at the not at baylor uh but at the festivals i was in before i remember crown of syracuse playing and People were generally fine, and then there's this scene, I think it's the second scene in the movie, where Archimedes walks across the room, and the entire audience breaks out into like hysterical laughter, because it was the first time that somebody walked in the film, <laughs> and it was just, I guess, very funny to see a Lego person walk on his own, uh, I guess. Anyway, it was very. this was 2007, so... People hadn't necessarily seen Lego videos before, I guess. Yeah, that's really funny. Yeah, I was like so confused at the time. It's like, this is what is he? He's just walking. He's just a Lego <laughs> man walking across a room. What's the big deal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 um, that's that's one of the things that you kind of don't, you don't even think about. But like when you have when you when you show like a film to like someone who's never seen a brick film before. Yeah, I mean, I'd been watching so many of them for six or seven years at that point that it was completely normal to me yeah <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah yeah like i was once asked like you know how are they moving on their own <laughs> like that is a comedy too crown of syracuse has all these jokes in it but by far the biggest laugh i got was when a character walked across a room <laughs> <laughs> that is funny i mean um i remember the first time i watched like a proper um like brick film. i think it was um pirates uh, by doug vandergrift and I remember, you know, for, I did get, I was really, like, amazed by it. Um, but I remember my, my initial reaction, the first time I saw it, 
was just I, I was just laughing so much just because Lego was moving. I just found that just funny. It took me a while mm-hmm. to actually kind of think, oh, you know, but it's, it is actually really good. You know? mm-hmm. uh, I will say with this Crown of Syracuse example, that happened more than once. I had different audiences and they all burst out laughing at walking across the room. <laughs> I was going to say that um, I'm pretty sure that when I first saw Brick Films, like really, really early stuff I saw, like Getting Scary Thriller with the, with the studio set that it came with. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I thought that it was CG animation, like because mm-hmm. I was so young, I didn't understand how it could work at all. And, and the same with um, Taxi on BrickPhones.com. Mm-hmm. I think you remember Taxi as well. Flash 1015's yeah. Taxi. That's right. Yes. I seem to recall you uh, mentioning that at the time that you didn't like... Did I complain about the violence? Violent, yeah. Well, that sounds like two th- what, 2005 me, maybe. I was very young and impressionable. How times have changed. Flash forward 10 years after that, and I was complaining about uh, that same thing. Um, on on the forums, I remember. <laughs> I don't notice it as much these days, but uh, maybe just because I'm just like desensitized to it. But like, I remember there used to be there was kind of like a phase when uh, brick films sort of just like um, where um, like play doh was used as blood, and mm-hmm. uh, I used to like complain about it like every time. <laughs> it's horribly graphic. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> There's enough pain in this world. I think the brick film community is kind of interesting in that pretty much everyone has like old embarrassing posts from when they were a kid yeah <laughs> so there's, there's always this kind of understanding of like yeah we were all there <laughs> <laughs> it happened to all of us at, at some point mm-hmm. i certainly remember some uh, some epic flame wars in the early days of bricks in motion regarding content and brick films which basically seems to never really occur anymore but i guess it's been so long yeah, that the likes of forest fire and keshin as the like most visible examples that nobody even thinks about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I don't think people really think about it in the same way anymore. I don't know, it's it's funny. No, yeah, it felt like back then there was a, a pretty large uh, group of people who were kind of, you know, shocked by content and Rick films. Mm-hmm. And always, like, basically trying to say, like, you shouldn't do this. There was like, an argument that was always going on every couple of months, it seemed, which greatly amused me, because then you could annoy them very easily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do kind of think that, I mean, I, I, I often think of like a lot of brick film history is, it, it kind of reflects um, film history in a lot of ways. And I think even the attitudes towards, you know, what can be shown in the film is, is kind of evolved in the same way. <laughs> <laughs> Although we, I think we were always very lucky in that the person running the website, be it brickfilms.com or Bricks in Motion, was always somebody who was like, you know, okay with... That's true. People putting content in their own films, as long as it, you know, was had a warning or whatever. Yeah, when I took over, we added some sort of warning system, um, which was really more about avoiding people getting upset and complaining. Uh, and you know, there are a lot of kids on the site. It's better if those kind of warnings are there. So, if a parent gets mad, we can say, "Well, your kid like saw the warnings and ignored them." But uh, yeah. It's. I think it's good to flag those things, but mm-hmm. I don't like to censor needlessly. Yeah, I do think it's 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 good to flag them. Yeah, but definitely, it seems like at at certain points, if it had been somebody else running the site, there could have been certain things that somebody might have just decided, oh no, we we can't let you link that, <laughs> like Rick and Steve uh, and that, films at the start. Yeah, we did have a few uh, films that we removed um, when I was running the site. Um, I don't know if we want to get into it on the podcast or not, but 
they were pornographic, suffice it to say. I do remember, yeah, a very small number, but they were completely devoid of <laughs> merit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean that that is all the that's all the video was basically. It was like, yeah, mm -hmm. there was a lot of detailed clay work and that kind of thing. So yeah, but it's good to be able to draw a distinction there. Yep. Yeah. Um, do we want to head over to the Brick Film Showcase? Yes, let's. Cool. So, for those of you new to the podcast, the showcase is an opportunity for each of us to talk about Brick Films that either mean a lot to us or that we just want to talk about in general. So my pick was Hastings by uh, Night Owl. Um, so this is a 2007 uh, Brick Film. Um, and it's, um, well, yeah, basically it's, it's a... Uh, Kind of adaptation of the Battle of Hastings, ten sixty six, and um, yeah, I mean, with these, you know, as with pretty much any any film by Night Owl, it's uh, got some amazing uh, cinematography, and you know, there's there's this very kind of moody uh, aesthetic to it um, that uh, you kind of get the sort of like cloudiness, you know, like it it seems very kind of film like, just pretty much any 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 shots in the film it, it it's it's you know very striking um one thing i had noticed because when i was re-watching it is that uh you know there were certain there were certain aspects to it that haven't aged as well as as a lot of his films like the the sound design and stuff um that was something that kind of put me off a bit um just like the the audio quality of the voices and stuff um <laughs> I, I think maybe just because these days he's just kind of used to it not being that way <laughs> but um no i think vi you know visually it still holds up really well i really like uh, especially like near the end of the the battle the the kind of shots of like you got a camera kind of like um panning across the the soldiers and then like the arrows up in the air and stuff it's um it it looks really good and i think especially because the the, the picture quality uh, like the resolution is quite low the graphics don't look too bad because because of because of the quality <laughs> um so it it kind of all seems to work really well um yeah it's in general like the scope and visuals and everything are just yeah. really quite something to admire and and it's also like, like this is the first time you've actually properly seen this isn't it Fenter? <laughs> for me yeah yeah this is Hastings is like one of these films that came out when I was really young and you know it was like 10 minutes long and I kind of just said oh you know what? I'll watch that one of these days and I never did so I've only just watched it today for, in full for the first oh, time really? yeah um and I, with some other Night Owl films as well I think it's impressive how he uses what amounts to a very small amount of Lego on screen to suggest a very large area uh yeah whereas nowadays you'd see people using lots of Lego uh to make an impressive large scale but he, he uses a small amount and of course uh yeah cinematography i mean i think nidel was so far ahead of his time in brick filming that like if this was released this year it would probably still be in the running for the cinematography award and that's yeah we would have talked about that as well with the crucible trailer and uh with the river we've, we've talked about before but with hastings i feel like on a story or character level it's not as compelling as something like the river which i'm completely drawn into and and yeah the sound design i guess that the voice acting kind of doesn't help it seems like sound is always the last thing to to get to a good level in brick filming for whatever reason but yeah hastings is still 
absolutely worth the watch in full uh, for a visual level. And, you know, people could watch it now and, and take influence from it in brick filming. Yeah, I would say that um, definitely I'm, I'm very kind of drawn to the to the cinematography and I'm not necessarily paying a whole lot of, of attention to like what's actually going on. And it's quite long for, for what, you know, is going for what's happening in the film. Like the main actual fight scene is like the last like three minutes of the film, but um, uh, but yeah, I just think on the visual level, there's just so much to it. Uh, I I definitely kind of feel like the maybe it's like the color the color palette and and just like cinematography in general kind of reminds me a lot of um, Tricker Brick, like the stuff that he does now. Um, but um, I think the I think it's one of those kind of like I think we've sort of mentioned this before, uh, possibly even with. Um, with um, Night Owl is that um, the, the the kind of low resolution probably helps to to give it some more scope <laughs> because if it, if it was so if it was like really clear um, it may not quite look the same well I mean we do have the Crucible trailer and the river in really in pretty good quality and uh, they're the my favorite of his the for the look of them yeah the sh- shot compositions are quite thoughtful and interesting in Hastings I think and just the like you were talking about the cloudiness it feels like england and uh or at least a movie version of england and the way that the color palette is kind of muted is quite unusual for a brick film uh at any time i think and it just shows there's a lot of like cinematic thought process behind the visual planning of the film that i thought was holds up pretty well and it's really impressive for how young I think he was at the time that he was doing these. It's definitely the case that like the story and the characters are a little thin. I remember he had this write-up for the film when he was doing casting that said that William the Conqueror was a complex villain who was well-liked by his uh, his soldiers. And then I got the script, and the line was, We will trample them down like the grass beneath our feet. And he kept making me redo the line to emphasize feet harder and harder until you got to what's in the film. Uh, it's just like this overtly sinister mustache twirling villain by that point, which I thought was kind of funny considering uh, his original intent. But uh, it's all in all really impressive uh, for like I just his kind of cinematic styling was really interesting back then. Yeah, back then and nobody else was doing anything like that. Right. Even today, there's not a lot of people doing stuff like this. To this, no, I agree. Cin- and even cinem- yeah. cinematography-wise, like it, there's not a lot mm. of brick films even now that are really shot like this in a really, you know, film-like way. Yeah, I mean, even people talk about Unrenewable being cinematic, but I wasn't really thinking through compositions as uh, in as high a level of of a way as as he is clearly doing throughout this entire film. Uh, I think I benefited from better camera quality and that kind of thing, but um, yeah, the compositions in particular really stood out to me watching it today. The thing that's the, oh, that I find quite funny about it is that um, if you if you kind of like look at like the the, the sort of like paintings of William the Conqueror and uh, King Harold, they should be the opposite to the way they are in the brick film. Mm. Like <laughs> King Harold in in the, the brick film looks a lot more like William the Conqueror. Mm-hmm. That makes it a bit visually confusing if you like with the context. Um, yeah, I, I just that's just like so. I think that's something that I'd noticed before. Um, 
There's a there's a couple. I'm American, of... so I know nothing. <laughs> you... And you get to hear my beautiful British and Irish accents in the film, or is it? I don't know what I was trying to be on the other role because I had two roles. Oh, I thought you were at two roles actually. Yeah. I'm the one that's like something about William on the other side of the field. I don't remember the line exactly. I think that 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 did stand out to me actually. I was like, is that is that meant to be an Irish accent? <laughs> I'm not really sure. I I don't remember. I mean, I remember that he coached me quite a bit on some of those lines, but I don't remember what I was trying to do. I think that um this I'm guessing it was in production for a long time and maybe the Crucible trailer came out before it, but maybe he did the the voice acting for that after he'd already done the voice acting for Hastings because it feels like the Crucible trailer has really good voice acting for the time and I think you're in that one as well. I am, yeah. It seems I'm more believable. Danforth or something. I do think that, I guess compared to like, you know, the three that we've talked about, I mean, because you've got like Crucible and uh, the River, like, I think that they seem very polished on like most levels. I think like, I think especially like the River, like I think... I think we sort of mentioned this before that like that it's it's like almost on every like aspect that it's it's so well done. And I think if because he's got because he had such a high kind of standard, um, looking at Hastings, you can see there's a bit more flaws. So I'd kind of I would believe um, that Hastings probably did was probably mostly made before the Crucible. Um, I mean, there's a couple of aspects, mostly just nitpicking because mm-hmm. because you know it's something like, to talk about. <laughs> yeah, but also like because of like you know like the standards uh, of like Night Owl and stuff like um, there's a shot about three and a half minutes into it where you've got like um, these like troop of soldiers um, like uh, on top of a hill and they're all kind of like moving static, um, as in like it looks like a plate has been moved. Um, and I'm just like comparing that to something like the river, where you've got like a troop of soldiers all marching, and you know, I don't know. There's there is quite a difference there, I think. Well, yeah. I mean, Hastings was made for a contest hosted on the forum that was a. It had a ridiculously long running time, so I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of it was made uh, earlier. Yeah. I'm watching clips of the river right now, and it looks like the river was shot on the DSLR, probably, whereas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hastings is definitely a webcam, so yeah, I seem to recall Night Owl talking sure. about using Pentax lenses on the river, mm-hmm. so it would be DSLR. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean that's it's too shallow for a webcam. So the film I've picked this time is a film that I've only seen for the first time within the last week, called Clone Pirates: The Tentacle Trap, by a guy named Winter Moog, who seems to be more active as a mock creator rather than a brick filmer, and that's kind of visible in the film because it doesn't really adhere to the general trends of any specific area of brick filming at the time. And this this is a film that was sent to me by Sebastian Segura, who uh, is very good at scrubbing YouTube for hidden gems, and this only has 4,000 views. And uh, it's a film without dialogue, and I feel like the sort of general, most common style in brick films is, like, there's not a lot of thought put into the staging and how it's shot. It's more just, like, Whatever is happening just so happens to occur in front of the camera, if you know what I mean. But um, what stood out to me in this film was I feel like there's a lot more thought put into how the uh, the visuals convey the story. And it just it seems to me to be engaging even if there's not a lot actually going on in certain stretches. Like if they're just walking from one place to another, the way it uses the visuals seems to keep it interesting. And I feel like 
you know, it, it's still it's worth a look for people in, in this day and age uh, for that reason. Well, even like in the beginning when you've got like, you said, there's not a whole lot going on that, that but like, I think the, the, the set and everything is really interesting and you have like cool things like the, you know, the way that the, the kind of like elevator kind of like thing slides down. They kind of like one into like the other room and stuff like it's just kind of interesting, I guess almost like world building in a way. Um, they're just kind of, uh, it's just kind of interesting because it's like setting up the kind of like the way that the world kind of works, I guess. And that's always kind of visually interesting. Yeah, it's pretty impressive in terms of scope, like that something like this uh, was made and went completely under the radar. I, I guess that's YouTube for you, but uh, it's like he uploaded it as an afterthought. It's got .mp4 in the title, <laughs> yeah. but uh, <laughs> it does. I did wonder if it was made for a contest. There's a comment about it winning an award at Comic Con. There was some contest I entered for Legos or for I think just for Star Wars videos back then. Uh, I don't know what year it was, but I entered something that where they showed some of the winners at Comic Con. So I don't know if it's the same thing, but I'd never heard of it. And it looks like it took forever to make, so it's yeah, impressive. Certainly looks like he put a, a lot of time and effort into this, and I'm kind of amazed. I mean, I, to the best of my knowledge, it wasn't posted within the community at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just seems amazing when somebody makes something with this much effort put in, but doesn't. Yeah, like even having .mp4 in the title, it's just it has nothing going towards getting people to actually see it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I. I like the idea of hopefully bringing some attention to it with by featuring it here. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like we need a way to post films. I guess we do that. We used to do those little front page articles. Uh, if if there were a way to post it on Bricks in Motion so people could see it. Yeah, I think that. But yeah, for a while Nathan and I were doing the articles, but I think that this podcast has kind of replaced that for me. Ah, I see. I can yeah. use this to highlight something. <laughs> It's kind of the, the showcase. Um, I, well, a big part of the reason why I sort of started the podcast was I just wanted to get like a find a kind of other format where you kind of just you know talked about brick films. Sure. Yeah. And I have seen people saying that they check something out because we've talked about it on the podcast. That's good. So it's nice to know. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> a job is working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like. Um, a lot of the visuals and everything. Um, there's probably a, a couple of like, I guess like, nitpick. I guess like the the walk cycles a bit sort of, I don't know, could be better. But <laughs> I I, I kind of like that. You know, after seeing the same walk cycle in so many Rick films for so many years. Yeah. I mean, there, there are a lot of there's a lot of like just visual stuff that go, going on that's just you know really cool. Um, there's a there's a thing I was looking at then where it's like there's like this like patch of the ground that just like sort of collapses. And he falls like into the ground, like just like the way it's animated and everything. It's just really cool. I think mm -hmm. it's always very difficult in brick films to have people falling into the ground, falling through holes and things. Yeah, it's kind of like you know, you, there's the two the two things that are really hard to kind of show in in brick films, and that's like uh, underground and ceilings. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> anything vertical related. Yeah. So any anyone that does that, you know, deserves a shout out. I think. <laughs> I liked the ending because I didn't expect it at all. That like the plant things just win, and that's the end. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if this was meant to be like the first part of a series. It has that feeling to it. Yeah, it has that feel, but because it's not, yeah, it just ends like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, they took 
this probably took at least a year and a half to make, I would think, so. <laughs> no, maybe not, but it looks like it took a long time. Yeah. It definitely has the quality of a of a brick film that would go into a, a wee brick contest and be ignored. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I do feel like if people saw this when it came out, it you know, could have had a a good stature by now. Yeah, I think about Lego Star Wars videos like Sector Seven and how that like blew my mind at the time and it really wasn't that technically impressive uh this would have really been amazing to me as a kid i just think even even by today's standards this would do really like it is really yeah, it's, good it's impressive i agree i know it's not like as as like long ago as like the other examples but yeah i think it, i think it it holds it, it looks really good like there's nothing in it that seems particularly that like age poorly maybe just like it being in 360p but aside from that i mean <laughs> even that's not really that noticeable so <laughs> yep i think it's about the same age as as the film i picked so it's a lot more technically advanced that's for sure <laughs> so do you want to introduce your pick uh sure so i picked winner uh by brendan crick uh it was his thack entry um, I wish I knew which year. It was or the start which number. Two thousand and nine for tax six. Okay. And I will say I was the judge on that contest and I definitely voted for it to be the winner <laughs> of that thack. Um I think it was a slightly controversial winner. Maybe because mm -hmm. it's violent, uh or maybe because it, the whole thing is so strange and absurd. But I think the main reason I picked it for this was that it captures a pretty specific style of comedy that I feel a lot of brick films have imitated and not pulled off particularly successfully. It's it's, it's hard to do, of like this really zany, silly, absurd premise with a really stylized visual approach. And this one in particular does it all without any di or very little dialogue aside from the opening monologue, which has like this intentional, yeah, uh, intentional bad acting. Stilted. Like, it's this weird, stale performance that sort of makes it better. Um, so there's just a lot of things going on that I think are pretty impressive in a subtle way. Um, I will say I really enjoyed Sanjira's recent film. I think it was a brawl entry that also had a dog in it. And that was capturing a similar kind of tone to me. Yeah, just the humor and the violence. Um, I almost picked that, but I thought, oh, everybody's going to have seen that. Uh, and it made me think of this. So um, I remember Craig saying he wanted to try the rain thing after seeing Unrenewable, but uh, it feels like it suited this film's tone as well pretty nicely. And uh, yeah, it's just I had to go back and watch it and see if it held up um, as far as how funny I found it in the first place, and I think it did. Yeah, I remember Tag 6... Uh... I was I was on the side of uh, Weed Cops, which came second. <laughs> oh, that's right. So, so, this, so those yeah. were both that year. That's kind of interesting. You're right that it was kind of a controversial pick at the time. <laughs> Cause, because I remember being one of those people like, Weed Cops should have won. <laughs> and They're of course, dark it, comedies. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, in this day and age, Weed Cops wouldn't even be allowed. <laughs> yeah. That, I remember that having a, a pretty epic four-page, I think, yeah, flame war going on about content. Well, there was a guy who thought that he hadn't made it 
during Thack, and that he cheated. Oh yeah, and uh, he had cool. no proof, and that that went back forth, back and forth for a long time. Yeah, I remember trying to say that the mod element wasn't in shots for. Well, I mean, at the time you were kind of allowed to get away with it being, mm-hmm. you know, not exactly the letter. <laughs> if the the letter can't... mod could just be a vague shape that was close enough. I can't remember. I don't think it was that film. Maybe it was a different one that Night Owl did. Gift from the Future. Um, sometimes he would put the mod element in and then crop it out just on a piece of paper so he could prove that he did it. Um, and then he sent the uncropped version to the judge or to the contest runner. I think he did that with Gift from the Future, though. I'm not sure if that was the case with Weed Cops. Uh, Weed Cops, I know that the controversial shot was when they're in the car and right. the mod element is like a shape drawn on the uh, the hood of the car. Right. It's, it's kind of in darkness, so it's... Yeah, but it really wasn't a, a controversy. It was this one troll yeah. on the forum just going on and then everybody, like, acknowledging him when we probably should have just ignored him. But anyway, we're here to talk about Winner. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> Winner was the winner, so... Anyway. Uh, I guess some things never change. I'm just here talking about Night Owl. Cups instead. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I have a whole lot more to say about Winner other than it is a very specific style of comedy that I th- think is... Not so easy to do this well. I do particularly like the really obvious, obviously poorly delivered voice acting at the start and very specific timing to it as well. Yeah, there's a specificity to it that's interesting to me. And I feel like around the same time period, I saw a lot of comedy brick films that tried to be wild and crazy in kind of a similar way, but it, they didn't really work for me anyway, uh, t- to the same degree. And also a lot of... Yeah, poorly delivered voice acting was pretty standard back then, but not mm-hmm. intentional. Whereas in this, you can really feel that it's it is intentional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's and like maybe people it's like, didn't notice it at the time, though. It's sort of comically calling attention to the obviousness of what's about to happen in a way. Yeah, anyway. I do like um, uh, the design of the dog. It's quite yeah, cool. it reads pretty well, and it animates in funny ways. The tail wagging. I think for like the tone and everything, it works much better than if they just had the you know the dog mold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's funny how the dog has no face, no mm-hmm. expression to it. The wa- just this wagging tail lever piece. <laughs> but yeah, of course. Uh, I think we often find that with tack entries, you run out of things to say quick enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're pretty short, but yeah, worth a look regardless. Although I suppose we could mention. I guess people don't know about Crick anymore. He was a pretty prominent member of the forums back then. But now all his brick films are unlisted, so you can only access them through the wiki. Good thing the wiki yeah. exists. Yeah, but but I do remember liking a lot of his comedy brick films. They were, yeah, they were often a bit offbeat. There was strange yeah, things think, going on in them that other people weren't doing. I think he had good comedic instincts for sure. Ah, but it was actually his last brick film. Really? Yeah. Just looking on them. Well, wiki. he was like, I've done what I set out to do. I won Thack. Uh, there's nowhere to go but down from here, so. <laughs> That's interesting. But yeah, that would have been at the time when Thack was still considered unofficial. It wasn't, uh, inv- it wasn't officially a Bricks in Motion contest. Although, I mean, actually, Thack 6, were you the, uh, the owner of the website by then? Or was that a bit too early? I took over February 2009. Okay, so you weren't... It was a bit earlier than that, so I was going to say that, you know, you were judging it. Uh, I might have been a judge. Doesn't... I was pretty involved, but I'm not sure. Yeah. 
but that doesn't doesn't mean that it had much in the way of a official association. Oh, I see. Yeah, it was the next one, Tag Seven, that started that. Yeah, we were thinking about getting contest sponsorships and that kind of thing, and so we needed to have content requirements at that point or restrictions. Yeah, I also feel like it's good to be able to just share the contest playlist entries with all users of the site, no matter. Yeah, it's like you can't post weed cups on the front page and say this won yeah, our contest. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I'm totally in favor of um, content restrictions for official contests. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I'd say that's probably a wrap. But <laughs> like, I think we've uh, sure. had quite a good. Do a little conclusion or whatever. Oh, sorry. I feel like I just interrupted your conclusion. <laughs> no, no, sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much for for joining us. This has been great. Thank you. Appreciate the the opportunity to be on here. It was fun. It's nice to just get back in, just back into doing podcasts again. You know, as well. <laughs> yeah. <I laughs> after bet. after quite mm-hmm. a long a long period of time without. Best of luck with y'all's films, uh, At Man, and I think Taco Trouble too. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So, who knows need... if 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 this takes some time to edit, maybe Tacker Trouble Two will will be already out. Oh, really? Are you that far along? I'm pretty far by now. Yeah, that's good. Because you also you want it to be, um, you want to be able to release it before twenty, you know, before like the before the end of the year, so you could submit. Well, it to... uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> who knows? You know how these things go in brick filming. What would be nice isn't always what actually happens. Oh yeah, I hear that. I mean, you know, I had I had my release date for Outland episode uh, six to be yeah, I think basically October twenty eighteen, and it came out in October twenty twenty. You know. <laughs> but yeah, thanks so much for coming on. It's been great to get a, sure. a slightly different perspective than than what we usually hear. Yeah, I've just been around a while, I guess. So <laughs> <laughs> it does does provide a different perspective. Yeah, good to talk with you all. Definitely interesting to get like a perspective of someone who's like working within live action and, and doing that kind of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of the people that we talk to are always kind of like, you know, talking about one day getting to that point. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lego Animation gave me a good foundation uh, as a starting point, I would say. I didn't really feel like uh, I got up to the level of filmmaking that my Lego videos were at until much later. Uh, like grad school uh in terms of pulling off good quality with live action it's a lot more challenging but learning the basics with lego was a really good starting place for me and you get to kind of do just like you get a basic idea of every kind of role within film as well i think yep exactly but yeah um yeah thank you thank you Mm -hmm. bye bye guys bye